0: Well, I've said before that I, I really believe that there are some fundamental desires that actually reside in every human heart. And I, I believe that it makes sense that it would be this way because God created us. And if the same God created us, you would expect to see the prints of God all over us. And I think one of the ways that we see that is in the desires of the human heart. And, and one of those fundamental desires is a longing for shalom in the home. I, I believe that every human heart has this longing or desire, whether or not they've identified it, for a, a kind or a sense of peace and joy. A kind of, of, of peace that is, is really um, um, great and profound in every area of life, especially in the most intimate recesses of who they are. And, and I believe all of us have that. Now, I think that you can actually see this if you look at culture all around you. You can see this desire in many different ways. So, uh, for instance, you you can see this politically. Uh, Most recently in the presidential election, you might remember that President Trump came up with a a famous tagline or slogan that he was running over, uh, and and he was running on this. He said, uh, basically, I, I want to make America great again. Now you'll remember that people responded to that in different ways. So there were some who when they heard that, they were reminded of a former day when uh, they didn't feel like they were aliens in their own home anymore. It felt more like a homey place and they wanted that place to come back and they believed that the president was promising that he could actually do that. But there were others who heard that same message and they were filled with all kinds of anger and rage because they remembered that as a time when there was a kind of privilege that was unfair towards some and there was also abuse towards others, weak and minorities. And so as they heard that, they said, I don't want to go back to your home if that's what home looks like. We also see this socially, don't we? Uh, I, my sister has actually just started a business where she is helping people redecorate their homes. And one of the things that she often hears from people when they are working with her is, uh, I really believe this is my forever home. Have you ever heard that? Now, what do they mean by forever home? Well, I think that means something like, I'd like to have my grandkids here over for Thanksgiving. I'd like to die in this home, which technically isn't forever, but uh, it's their forever home. Uh, you see this happen in other ways. I mean, I mean if you think about it, uh, we see this desire for a home uh, even in Phoenix. I mean, just think about it. We have four and a half million people. And how many people have noticed that it is exotic to find a native? Anybody? Like, if you actually find somebody that is from Phoenix, it, it's, like, unheard of. You're like, wow, you've actually been here from the beginning, like, 60 years ago? And, and most people have, have not been. In fact, most people are here, but they would consider home somewhere else. And if you notice that there's often this longing of, am I in the right place or I should be at home? Which is maybe not here. This is often this pursuit of home. And let's not forget the way that nostalgia can can take a role in this even in the lives of Christians uh, how many of you uh, have been this person are this person or know someone who might be an older Christian who uh, remembers the glory days of a church and uh, they look at those glory days and they remember about how everything was perfect people didn't sin back then everybody dressed perfectly everybody bathed and like comb their hair I mean it was a great world to live in like who doesn't want to go back there right and, and yet they're discouraged because they feel like they can never get back to that place. And more and more, year by year, they feel like they're visitors in their own home. And they're wondering if they can ever get back to that place that feels so familiar. Brothers and sisters, I think this is a very familiar experience for the human heart. See, everybody's searching for that home that satisfies those needs of belonging and safety and peace and love and joy. And what we do with that longing that all of us have can either lead us to the glory of God and the good of ourselves now and forever or further into slavery into a world that is not our home. And so we need to be constantly reminded of the reality that the home that we long for, the way that we fill that box and what we set our hope in as far as where that place is will shape the direction of our lives. And so if your forever home is Mississippi, then your life is not gonna look like God-glorifying, Jesus-magnifying, spirit-driven, exalting kind of stuff. It's gonna look like something else. If it's some event in the past, and your life, your home that you long for is past-driven rather than future-driven, then you're going to find yourself less hopeful and happy to the glory of God. And so we need to fill that hope box with what God calls us to do. And I believe that Peter's message to the Christians that he is writing to in First Peter actually has a lot to say about how we ought to live life as we look for that coming day when hope becomes sight. In fact, we're uh, this morning beginning a series that I'm excited about. We're starting uh, this week our Hopeful Exiles series in the book of 1 Peter. And it's going to focus on how God's people should live as aliens and exiles far from their homeland. What does it look like to obey Christ when we are far from home? Now, if, if you're interested in details which set the context, and I think that's important for us, Uh, It's important to note that we believe the Apostle Peter wrote this letter. In fact, we don't really have any evidence of anybody denying that in early church history. Uh, It it seems very uh, common and and obvious that he wrote it because his name is on the letter. Uh, And it seems like he wrote from Rome. Uh, Rome, which he calls Babylon in in, uh, 513 of 1 Peter. He he seems to be writing from Rome in this, somewhere around like 62-ish A.D., uh, you know, before uh, Nero's uh, persecution of the church and before the death of Peter, it, it seems somewhere in there. So just three decades after Jesus' death, we find Peter writing this letter to a church. Uh, now, he might've, it might have been written through a secretary uh, before he sent it with Silvanus, which you'll find at the end of the letter, it coming from Silvanus, to Christians who were living in a, a Greco-Roman area uh, that is essentially modern-day Turkey. And so he's writing this letter to them and it was a circular that would have been sent around to the churches and the provinces listed. Now, even though there are a lot of Old Testament allusions in this book, you'll notice a lot. In fact, you'll see that even this morning. What we'll find is, is that most scholars agree that Peter is writing to a mostly Gentile audience. A, a group of people who faced the struggles of everyday life as they tried to live out their Christian faith in a land far from home and far from God. Now, obedience to Jesus made them look and feel like strangers and exiles who were always renting and never buying. They were never home. They always felt like they were out of place. They longed for that forever home, and they never got there. But Paul Ochtmeyer, he actually described the kind of persecutions that we're going to read about, and I think this is important. Because some of you might read 1 Peter and think, man, this just seems like hardcore persecution. And I believe there were significant persecutions in here. But I don't think they're altogether different from the kind of persecutions that that we are facing and may face in the future. In fact, Paul Actemire, writing about this in his commentary, said that the persecutions that they faced were spasmodic. In other words, they weren't like always consistent. They were just kind of inconsistent. Sometimes here, sometimes there. They broke out at different times in different places. And he says that they were more often social pressure than political pressure. Does that sound familiar? That that, that often the pressure and the sufferings that you face right now, I mean, yeah, sometimes political, but not often as political as they are social with my, my friends and my family. Those are the kinds of struggles that they were experiencing day in and day out. Well, Peter tells them to anchor their lives as spiritual exiles, with a hope that is firmly set on their heavenly home. Now, our big idea this morning, if you're taking notes, a great thing to write down. Our big idea is this. It's that being in Christ makes us aliens looking for a better future home. Being in Christ makes us aliens looking for a better future home. That's that's part of what it means to be a Christian. And that's what we find in these first two verses of 1 Peter. Go ahead and look there with me, and uh, we'll read these verses, and, and then we'll, we'll get started. Here's what he says in 1 Peter 1 and 2. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, as we look at this, I want us to to take this message and use it as kind of an introduction to the book of 1 Peter and how we are to understand it. And so the first thing I I really want us to spend some time on is understanding in that first part of verse 1, the fact, the reality that God's word comes to us with unparalleled authority. God's word comes to us with unparalleled authority. And I think that verse 1 sort of tips the hat at this when we're told that it's Peter that is writing as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter's writing as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, we need to know a little bit about Peter, so let's, let's just do, I think it'd be fun just to do a little history of who Peter is who's writing this letter and how we're to understand uh, who, who this guy is that's writing this. Now you'll remember that Jesus actually first called Simon to come and drop his nets and follow him and become a fisher of men and he did so. And, and Simon later, Uh, would be asked by Jesus a really important question, a question that he was trying to help the disciples come along and understand all the way. And he says, who is it that you say that I am? And of course, Peter responds to him, or Simon responds to him at this point. Well, of course, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In other words, you Jesus, I understand that you are actually that long-awaited Messiah or King that we have been waiting for who would come and deliver us from all of our enemies. You, You are that guy. We've been looking for you, and you're here. You have come to bring us peace from all of our external enemies. And Jesus responded in Matthew 16, 18, saying, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, Peter actually, I believe, uh, it's interesting, you you need to know his name actually means rock. And so Peter here has been given the name rock. Of course, this points to the testimony that he gave, I believe, of Jesus as the Christ, not to Peter as the rock of the church himself as kind of a a pre-Pope figure, That's not what's happening here. He's pointing to the authenticity, the truthfulness, the fullness of his gospel proclamation. Now, I know that a number of you have come out of Catholicism, and maybe some of you are still there and and thinking through this. And so I think it's important that we think about Peter a little bit more. And the reality is that Peter is shown throughout his life not to be above the word of God any more than any other man is. See the Catholic Church says the Word of God has authority over um, the the man of God or the Pope has authority over the Church, rather than the Word of God having authority over the Church. That's a huge distinction between what evangelicals and, and Catholics believe. And here we find that throughout Peter is shown as being a man who must submit to the Word of God. See, Peter's not above the Word any more than anyone else is. Now he is uniquely an apostle or a messenger who has been sent to deliver the message of the king and not to change it. So he is someone who has been given a significant entrustment, a letter that has been given to give to us. And if he breaks that seal, then it's his life. It is a, a deadly thing to actually tamper with the mail of God. But that doesn't mean that the male, he is one with the mail of God. See, only Jesus is considered to be the word of God. One with the Word of God, the very Word of God, which speaks to the authority of Christ. There is no other higher authority than Christ. And Peter is not above that message. Now, if you read through the rest of the Gospels, you almost wonder if Jesus' nickname for Peter is ironic. Right? I mean, he's called a rock, but if you follow the, the storyline of this guy, then it, it's fascinating to find out that this guy actually doesn't always look like the rock that Jesus calls him. In fact, I looked it up. I said, there's got to be a word for whenever your name like, means the opposite of like, what it seems to, to mean. And, and there is. There's a word. It's a big word, a rarely used word. It's called anapronym. Y'all you'll hear that? That's your word of the day. Anapronym. And that's fun. You, you come and you learn other stuff. And, an acronym. I won't use other words like that. But it's a weird word. It means a person's name describes something clearly different than what we are. And here Peter is called Rock, but doesn't he look less like a rock than, than he actually is? It's kind of like Frank Beard, who for a long time was the only member of ZZ Top who didn't have a beard, right? Like, it's kind of like, that's ironic. And here's Peter being called the Rock upon which Christ will build his church. Did you ever notice how it's just a few verses later that Jesus looks at Peter who responds to Jesus saying that I must go and I must die for you and I must be raised again on the third day. Peter says, no, never let it be, I won't let this happen. And do you remember what Jesus says right after he calls him the rock? He calls him Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. For your mind is set on things below, not things above. Like you need to get your, your, your thoughts straight. See, Peter was, uh, I think, a lot like me, like quick to speak and slow to think, and so often really slow to get it, to get the point. And I believe this is a good illustration of Peter in total. He's zealous enough to step out of the boat in the storm, but he lacked the faith not to sink to the bottom like a rock. And he often heads the list of his disciples. In fact, he was invited to join the Sons of Thunder up on the mount to see the transfiguration apart from the rest of the disciples. He's one of the three that got to see Jesus reveal his glory as he was with Elijah and Moses. And as he's looking, he's like stuttering, stammering. He doesn't know what to say. And he says, you know what, Jesus, I'll build tents for all of you so that we can recognize you. And as he's talking, he got shushed by God the Father. Have any of you ever been shushed by God the Father? Like that's That's Peter. If anybody would get shushed by God the Father, it's Peter. And it's like, let me just interrupt, okay, before you say something even dumber. Like, here's the deal. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He is unique from Moses and Elijah. They don't even begin to compare with who he is. They're here to witness his greatness, his glory. And yet you don't even understand as you're in the presence of the Son of God what it is that you're looking at. you'll remember that Jesus later would tell Peter and he would tell the disciples how their shepherd would be struck yet again and he said that the sheep would be scattered they'd be scattered and Peter responds that they fall away all of them because of you Peter says I will never fall away And Jesus responds, he said, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, to which Peter says, and and I'm paraphrasing here, nope, not gonna happen. And what does Peter do? Well, we find that just hours later, he's denying Jesus three times, beginning with a young girl. And he denies that Jesus is the Christ, just as Christ had said. See, he looks mostly like a rock when John beats Peter in a foot race to the empty tomb. That's when he looks like a rock. And we see a couple of I think important realities here as we are looking at Peter. It's not to demean Peter because he is an apostle of the faith. His words are the scriptures. Uh, We put our faith and rest them in his eyewitness account of who Jesus is. But the Bible is nowhere trying to say that this man is not a normal man who has been called out by God to receive an extraordinary message about who God is. And if you're a non-Christian, I think that this message of Peter, it really needs to to, to sort of haunt you, and you need to have an answer for this very question. What is it? What is it that would cause a coward like Peter on the day of Jesus' death abandons him and runs from him like a coward into the courageous preacher of the gospel who preached to anyone who would hear to the point that he even was martyred for his faith? What changes a guy like that? I mean, we could say the same thing about Paul, who is an expert in the Hebrew religion and language, and and, and this was a man who actually was seeking to kill Christians, and then something happened that changed him into a great preacher of the Word of God, who he himself also went to his death for the message of Jesus Christ. What is it that must have changed for Peter in that empty tomb that caused him to recognize that his life and his, his cowardice was not founded in reality, but instead what Jesus had done was actually something that ought to create courage in him for who God is. You know, I believe it's the resurrection. I mean, only a resurrection could account for the kind of switch and turnaround that we find in a man like Peter. And I'm just wondering if you've done justice to looking at the truth and the veracity of Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. Because catch this, if Jesus is raised from the dead, then that changes everything. And if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then you ought to give your life to figuring out whether or not he really has been raised from the dead. Well, I'm here to tell you that he has. He changes lives and he can change yours. But the resurrection not only is important in that, but we also find that Peter is important for another reason. Notice that Peter is an apostle a word that means messenger, sent by Jesus with a message about Jesus. See, God's word has authority over Peter, but Peter is not the unique earthly manifestation of Christ. There were other apostles. In fact, if he was a hope, I'm just curious how Paul can come and confront him in Galatians 2 and say, hey, you've not been standing up to the Judaizers like you should. You have not been truly applying the gospel as you ought. And if that's Peter the Pope, then how is it that he got it so wrong? And how is it that he can be held to account? Well, it's because the word of God had authority over Peter and over Paul and over you and over me. See, God's word has authority over us. And Jesus alone is the word of God which speaks of his authority over us. So this gospel message could even correct the messenger, Peter. And Peter learned that the gospel actually calls us to be elect exiles. Did you see that? In verse 1, he goes on to say that we are elect exiles, Christians are. And notice what he says there. He says that he is writing this to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, Peter throughout is going to saturate this letter with language that is just pregnant with jewish imagery from the old testament so he's going through he's using words that would have tipped them off to old testament ideas and here we see three of them right up front he calls them elect exiles of the dispersion so uh, we, we should just look at each one of those so that as we're going through this letter we understand how it is that he's understanding them see what's fascinating is is if you really want to understand a letter or a book of the bible it's great to start with the introduction. And this introduction, I think, is framing the way that we understand this letter. But here's what he says first, that they are elect. Now, elect is an an adjective that's describing uh, the exiles, but it it seems to be emphatic here so that it's really focusing on the nature of these exiles and they're being elect or chosen. Now, I I think that when we see this word elect, it might be a little bit confusing because many of us have grown up in a democratic culture, and so... When we think about elections, we might have a different image than what is being portrayed here. So for instance, like you might be thinking when you think about an election about some kind of scenario where, um, you know, you decided that you were going to go and start sort of putting yard signs in yards talking about why you ought to be sort of chosen to be part of God's team because of look at all the things that you can do. Or maybe you're thinking that I gave a really good impassioned plea for all the reasons that God ought to love and like me. Or maybe you're thinking to yourself that there is some sense in which We need to campaign with God, putting before him all of the successful and good things that we have done. But that's not at all the way that we see election practiced in the Bible. In fact, the way that the Bible speaks of election is that it's God's initiative in choosing a people to enter into covenant relationship with him. It's God coming and, and taking the initiative to come and pursue and to seek us. So in the Old Testament, elect describes Israel's special status as the people chosen by God. In fact, God says his choosing looks upside down according to the world's standards. Uh, I love the image that he gives in Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8. Here's how God gives his people a pep talk. You ready? Here's what he says in Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8 to his people, Israel. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. And out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. I mean, I don't think he could be any more clear, both about the the extent of his love for them, right? You are my treasure, and yet at the same time, and it's not because of you. (laughs) What a great, like, combining of ideas. Like, treasure, but not because there's intrinsic value in you, it's because of who I am, right? You are the fewest, and yet I loved you and treasured you. And, and even if he wants to give some sort of like far ground of his love, it's like, oh, you're forefathers, but still, not you. Promises I made in the past, I'm keeping here in the present. That's the nature of God's choosing and electing love. God chose Israel. Now, this reminds me a little bit of The Sandlot, which is the best movie ever. And I don't know if you've uh, seen this movie, but it's a great movie. If you haven't, I don't know what rock you've been under, but, but it's a great movie. You should watch it. And pastors recommend movies. That would, I think, that's a good one. But in that movie, we've got this character. His name's uh, Scott Scotty Small, and he is uh, moved to a new town. He's away from home. He's in a new town. And he meets this guy, Benny the Jet Rodriguez, right? And this kid is like the best athlete in town. He's, he's amazing. And everybody loves him and respects him. And Scotty is like the least athletic person that you'll ever meet, right? And so he meets him and he wants to have friends. And so he's like, well, I need to like learn baseball so I can have a friend group. And so he finds himself sort of wandering on a field of baseball players. And uh, in the scene, it's, it's amazing because what you see is, is, you see this kid sort of like wandering around backwards in the outfield, like, obviously doesn't know what's going on. And Benny the Jet, just in his kindness and grace, calls him in and says, hey man, like, why don't you come play with us? And he's like, I don't know how to catch or throw a baseball. And he's like, and the other kids are like getting impatient, and they're like, ah, oh, don't let him in, he can't do anything, this guy is a loser. And he says, I tell you what, I want you to go out to the outfield, Scotty, and I want you to just hold up your glove like this. And it's easy to catch a baseball and it'll just go right in your glove, it'll be magic. And so he goes in the outfield and he holds it up and Benny the Jet throws up the ball and he hits it from home plate into center field and it lands right in his glove. And everybody looks and cheers and says, well, I guess he's not that bad. So yeah, come on and play with us. And in that scene, everybody's amazed that he caught it because they couldn't believe that he would catch it. But what's really amazing is not what Scotty did, but what Benny the Jet did. I mean, the pinpoint precision of knocking a ball from home plate into that glove from that distance was amazing, and that move that he made actually changed everything for Smalls and for his friendship circle. It made friends with everybody, and he was invited to play on the team. You know, that's a really good picture, I think, of God's choosing of us. You know, he says, come on in. Like, I know you're not, like, holy yet, but I'm, I'm making you holy and you're gonna catch up, I'm gonna transform you from one degree of glory to the next, until you, like Smalls, by the end of the movie, are actually looking like somewhat of a baseball player. But on that ultimate day, we know that we're waiting for, God is gonna ultimately transform us. God is gonna change us, and he is gonna make us look like him. That's the day that we long for. But when God chooses, he never chooses people that come pre-qualified. In fact, Ephesians 2, 4 says the only reason for God choosing us is found within God. Do you remember this? Uh, We were um, aliens from God. We were sinners and rebels. And then in verse 4 of Ephesians 2, he says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Let me just ask you this morning, I, I wish we had more time to dwell here like the whole time. But have you even begun to to start to meditate on what it means that God has chosen you, not because of anything in you, but because of everything that is in him? Have you begun to meditate on how vast and great and rich the mercy and grace and love of God is for your life? And what are you doing to help stifle your affections to meditate on those things? I believe the word of God and prayer are a great place to start I believe it's great to find books that actually stimulate your soul to think about the richness of God in Christ. But we need to be constantly stifling our hearts to think much about the greatness and the vastness of the God who loved us. And the only ground that we are given for that love ultimately in the Bible is because of the great love with which he loved us. It is the ground of God's grace and grace alone and not the merits that we bring to the table. See, God's initiative made us exiles. That's right. Second, God made us exiles. Exiles. Notice that we are elect exiles. God's people in the Old Testament were also familiar with being exiles. Uh, they knew what it meant to be sojourners, strangers, and pilgrims. See, that's someone who lives in a foreign land, but willingly or not. It's somebody who is politically not at home. That's what an exile is. But Paul, I mean, Peter here seems to be saying something that is actually more spiritual. See, God's people in the Old Testament, literally experienced this. God's people often experienced the punishment of exile. You'll remember that Assyria took Israel into exile. And later it was Babylon that would take Judah into exile. And all of this was because of their sins against God. In other words, exile really pictures being away from home. And God promised Abraham a land and a home. But most of Abraham's life, you'll remember, was spent outside of the land. He was a visitor in his own home, the land that God promised him. God's people knew what it meant to be strangers in a foreign land with different gods, different values, different foods, laws, and languages. See, they experienced the sufferings and the desire, they experienced the sufferings and desire to assimilate, right, just to kind of go along, to avoid the pressure of seeking to faithfully serve the one true God in a foreign land that refused to recognize him. Now there's a danger, I believe, to being an exile, a danger of wanting to assimilate and just kind of become part of what's going on. Uh, There's a danger of of lashing out and becoming violent against the other culture that you're in. There's a danger of trying to sort of start a, a monastery where you just separate from culture and you say, well, like, just good luck to them on the last day. All kinds of ways that we can respond to being exiles. But here, I believe Peter is focusing in on the danger that seems to be that of assimilating or simply making this world your home. Let me just ask you, are are you at all nervous as a Christian? Are you at all careful and thoughtful about whether or not you are making this world your home too much? There's a biblical word for that, it's called worldly. A a word that, that speaks to what it's like whenever you actually begin to become so ingrained in a culture and a world, and not just the good aspects, because there are good aspects, there are evidences of God in every culture, but in those aspects that actually rub against and push against the gospel. Do you know and are you aware that there are parts of the culture and parts of the things that you are watching, the information that you're taking in, the things that you're taking part in, that actually rub against the gospel, and are you vigilant to be careful not to be involved in those things? You know, in 1 John two fifteen to 17, uh, the apostle John says this, he says, "'Do not love the world or the things in the world. "'If anyone loves the world, "'the love of the Father is not in him, "'for all that is in the world, "'the desires of the flesh, "'the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, "'is not from the Father, but is from the world.'" And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So I'm just curious this morning, are you on guard? Are you on guard against the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life? Are you on guard? Are you on guard when you're on Instagram? Are you on guard when you're looking through Facebook? Or, Or you find your heart actually longing for something else? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, have you heard of this thing called like FOMO? Have you all heard of this—the fear of missing out? It's like an actual thing. Uh, I think they even diagnose people with it, and it's this fear that like when you're at home, right, or you're doing something, you're, you're looking on social media and you see somebody else living their best life now, and you think to yourself, "That is so much better than my life." And as you're looking at it, you're sitting there thinking to yourself, "I hate them because their life is better than mine," right? If anybody, nobody, everybody's like looking down. Not me, I've never had that experience. I'm the guy they're looking at, right? No, like you know that experience and some of you have even had to shut down social media because you know that you're struggling with like anger and hatred in your heart because you're looking at this other life and it's not your life and you're jealous for it and you want it and all of a sudden you begin to become dissatisfied with the life you're living for the life that you want. You're longing for a kind of home that's not yours and you're dissatisfied with where God's put you and where he's placed you that God who's chosen you and made you in exile and you have run from him and worldliness is seeping in a kind of selfishness kind of jealousy kind of longing that is not part of the people of God who long for something much better than the things this world has to offer you know a vacation in Cancun cannot cannot even begin to compare with the heaven that awaits you and me like, there's, there's, not a, there's not a car, there's not a house, there's not a ranch, there's, I don't know what you're into, but there's not anything in this world that competes with the home that we are bound for. We need to be careful not to love this world and begin to hate or forget the world that is to come. But notice here there's also the diaspora that he calls them. He says that they are part of the di- diaspora. I think he's speaking here specifically of specific spiritual exiles or scattered ones, Those in this specific area, but diaspora is actually a word that comes from uh, an idea that's located in Jewish history as well. See, Jews living out of Palestine were called scattered ones, the scattered. And they were scattered from home because of their sin. But notice where the specific scattered ones here are located. They're located in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, I think this list is just a number of Roman provinces or regions in Asia or Minor, present day Turkey, as I said before. And he's speaking to those Christians there, and, he's, and Silvanus likely delivered this letter to those churches in that order that is listed. But as we'll see, the language of this letter highlights the Gentile nature of these Christians. These are, these are not Jewish Christians mostly, they are mostly Gentile Christians, and Paul is, I mean, Peter is using language that described Jews as the people of God in the Old Testament, and now he's bringing it down and in, and he's applying it to the new covenant people of God. And he's saying, essentially, look, you now are truly and fully the people of God. Those promises made to Father Abraham are now yours in Christ. In other words, you're Israel 2.0. You are the new Israel of God. God is that much for you Isn't that a great promise that that God is for us in Christ? And I believe Peter says this from the outset of his letter, really to flip two important ideas on their head as he moves forward. There are two ideas, I think that he flips on their head here, about Christians as elect exiles. First, they're suffering exiles because God elected them. Now let me explain what I mean. You can imagine how you might be thinking to yourself, I feel like an exile and lonely and broken and I feel like I'm always a victim and never the winner. And you're thinking to yourself, man, life is hard. So does that mean that I'm not God's people? And what he's saying here is no. You were chosen to be exiles. You were chosen for a better home. And the suffering is just recognition that this is not the way things are supposed to be. So that it's not that your suffering is like, you know, kind of like disconnected from being chosen, but actually it's part of being a Christian and experiencing what it means to be in Christ, fulfilling the sufferings of Christ. See, their suffering as spiritual exiles in a foreign land, doesn't deny their identity as God's people, it verifies it. If we are suffering for Christ, it is actually, it feels weird, it feels bad, it's, it's not a good feeling, and yet at the same time, it says you are one of the children of God in Christ. Now, let me just ask you something. Have you ever found yourself in a place where suffering, you're suffering, I don't know if it's like a hospital room, or maybe you've lost a job, maybe you've got a kid who's sick or hurt, uh, maybe you have a broken relationship, but you're, you're in this suffering, a unique kind of suffering And you begin to ask yourself whether or not God really loves you. I don't know if that's you, but I've I've had those questions. They do shoot through my mind sometimes, and I have to attack them with the Word of God. But this happened one time when I was in college. I found myself um, suffering over a broken relationship. Anybody ever had that? Like, just hard. Any relationship, just hard when you have a broken relationship, And I ended ended it to seek more of God, but I quickly regretted it and found myself wondering if this was the way that the Christian life was supposed to feel, you know? Kind of like, God is most glorified in me when I am most dissatisfied with him. And I had been taught that God's will was like a series of rooms. Now this is not true, but but God's will is kind of like a series of rooms with a lot of doors. And so you, you want to choose a door to walk through, and then there's another room full of doors. And you have to make a choice and walk through another door, and another door, and another door. And you continue to go through doors, and you're hoping that every time you choose the right door. Because if you do, then you get God's like best life now, plan A for your life. But if you walk through one wrong door, and then another, and then another, that eventually you get so far from God's ideal plan for your life that there's no coming back. And I just wondered, had I walked through one, two, too many wrong doors? And I was just destined to be sad for God. My suffering had led me to think that I'd gotten so far off track that I couldn't get back to a truly meaningful life where the God was for me. But catch this. I have two big problems that cause me to struggle suffering faithfully as a stranger because God doesn't give up on his children if we are chosen he chose us before the foundations of the world was laid but here here my problems my true problems one is I don't like to suffer like I don't like to suffer at all I I don't not even a little bit I'm not good at suffering it's not something that I feel like I was built well for I don't like not to be accepted by my peers I don't like to be to, to have this feeling far from home or being like an outsider. I don't like sin, and I don't like how hard it is to defeat sin. I do grow weary in doing good, just left to myself. Not only do I not like suffering, which makes life hard, but also I'm impatient, really impatient. See, I don't like waiting in the doctor's office or the DMV. I don't like waiting in the in and out line. I don't like waiting to master my sins, and I'm even less patient on others mastering their sins. Anybody else out there like that? See, hating suffering and impatience can cause our hearts to question God's being for us when things get difficult, right? And those are sin tendencies in us. But catch the encouragement here. Now, I love what Tom Schreiner says. He says, believers are exiles because they suffer for their faith in a world that finds their faith off-putting and strange. Do you see it? It's it's not an argument against the fact that you were chosen by God, but actually an argument for it, that you are chosen. Another commentator, Leonard Gopler, says that God's election is what accounts for there being exiles. So it's not that you have to be an exile, it's that you get to be an exile based on your relationship to Christ. And don't miss this. Christianity might feel different than you expect. Christianity might feel different than you expect. And if... Christianity doesn't feel the way that you think it should. You shouldn't trust your feelings above God's word. But Peter flips one more thing on his head. Notice that Christians are also exiles not because of where they've come from, but because of where they're going. Did you catch that? that they are exiles not because of where they've come from, but because of where they're going. Now, in, in the Old Testament, they were always exiles because they had been kicked out of the presence of God And so they wanted to get back, but it was something that they had been removed from, usually because of their sin. But because of the work of Christ, what we find is we are now exiles, not because of where we've come from, but because of where we are going, to be home with God forever, and the glory of Christ being emanating and filling the whole universe. Like that's what we're waiting for. What a change. Exiles now has a hopeful meaning. Though it's real and it's expressing how hard it is, it's real in the hope that awaits us. See, our citizenship is in heaven. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden and longed to return to Eden. Israel and Judah longed to return to the land of promise, but these Christians aren't exiles because of the homes they left, but because of the home that awaits. They long for that new heavens and new earth. They long for it to drop down out of the sky, and just think about that for a second. They are longing for that day. How many of you are longing for that day? How many of you use the sufferings of this life as fuel for future hope rather than fuel for present despair? See, God wants it to fuel our longing for what is to come. Don't miss this. If this world is your home, you have no hope. But the less you feel like this is home, the more hopeful you will be. Hebrews twelve twenty two says as much. I love this. He says, "You have come to Mount Zion, speaking to Christians, right? Present tense, right now. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven." Like we need to remember where our membership is ultimately. It's in the Lamb's book of life. This is not our home. This is not our hope. Our passports read heavenly Jerusalem. And I believe Peter would say along with Randy Alcorn that the more heavenly minded we become, the more earthly good we become. I believe verses two, verse two actually explains how the Christian being elected became visible at conversion. Uh, You'll notice here that he says, that all of this in verse 2 is according to, and I think that according to is actually exploding the meaning of what it means to be elect exiles, and particularly what it means to be chosen. He kind of parses that out, and he gives us three descriptions of what that looks like, and notice that at each one, he's talking about a member of the Trinity and their active engagement in salvation. So first, notice here in verse 2, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God. Second, in the sanctification of the Spirit, And then third, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And so God has chosen a people who are far from here. And notice how all three persons of the Trinity take part in redeeming and claiming them. First, you have God the Father, who is redeeming them according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now that is speaking, of course, of this choosing and electing And as you look at foreknowledge, you might think that this looks to mean something like that God looked into the future and foresaw who would become his child. But that's not exactly the way the Bible uses the word foreknowledge. In fact, here the picture is of a God who's taking initiative and the way that he takes initiative. And here the God... God the Father is foreknowing them in the biblical sense of knowing. And know in the Bible often speaks of God engaging people with covenantal love, knowing in a unique, special, covenantal, committed way. That's what God is saying, that he forecommitted himself to them before the foundation of the world was laid. He foreordained that they should come to them. In fact, this idea of foreknowledge, I believe, carries the idea of foreordination and predestining in God's plans. Uh, We see this in Acts 2.33. There you'll remember as Peter preached, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So Jesus being delivered up according to the foreknowledge of God. It wasn't like God looked in the future and said, oh, did you know that Jesus was going to give his life for sins? No, it's, it's saying that it was part of the plan of God. He says that that Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See, God didn't just know that Jesus would die. He sent his son who willingly came to save us. And there was no other way for us to find salvation. In other words, Peter's highlighting God, the Father's sovereign initiative in salvation. But God, the Spirit is involved too. Did you notice that? The Spirit, here we find it's done in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, sanctification is a word that can be spoken in a couple of different ways in the Bible. You you see it sometimes in that progressive sense. That's usually the way we think about it, where we, from one degree of glory to the next, are being transformed into the image of Christ. But you can also see it in that other way, not the progressive sense, but that positional sense, in which when we become Christians, we are positionally in Christ. Usually people speak of sanctification in that progressive way. But... I believe that what's fascinating is in the Bible, it's even more often spoken of in that positional sanctification way, which is the act of God claiming a people for himself. And in the New Testament, when people receive the Holy Spirit, he is actually regenerating them and causing them to be born again as believers in Christ. And in doing so, he is consecrating or setting them apart to be used by God to make God known. In other words, I take this actually here to speak of God the Spirit making us holy at conversion positionally. He has made us a new people, a holy people who bear his name. So when they heard the gospel, these Christians, the Spirit sanctified them, bringing them to faith. But God the Son took part as well. Notice that it is for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, not surprisingly, I believe this line points back to another Old Testament text. In Exodus 24, 3-8, I believe we find a a parallel text that speaks of a a kind of New Testament grounding for this. And that's where, in Exodus 24, God inaugurates his covenant with Israel with sacrifices. And that included the sprinkling of blood, first on the altar. And and then he would make promises, and the people would uh, make promises of obedience to God. And then Moses would sprinkle them with blood. And in Exodus 24, 8, he says this, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. See, this parallels what Peter says in two ways. First, the obedience, and second, the sprinkling with blood. Uh, The people were called to be obedient to the gospel at conversion. They were called to obey the gospel, to believe it and to trust it. But not only that, we are told that in doing so, they were sprinkled with the blood of Christ. That's not talking about baptism. That's talking about the way that we entered into covenant with God in Christ. Christ, our great high priest, came as both our great high priest and the sacrifice that brought us into right relationship with the Lord. We are God's new covenant people. I think that's what this is saying. Now, as we go through this series, we will see that if we are in Christ and partakers of this new covenant, that God has called us to be elect exiles in the way that we live, as well as look in home, as we wait the home that we long for. So the shalom that we long for is coming, and we need to strive as chosen ones to live obedient lives as we await. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we come before you praising you that you are indeed our great God who has prepared a place for us. And Father, we long for that day as elect exiles. Uh, Lord, we're about to partake in communion, and Father, this is a meal where we think about uh, Jesus Christ and the blood that was shed for us that makes us a people. We also think about the heavenly home that we await. So Father, we pray that like as we come to this table that you would do business in our hearts, that you would reveal our sins, that you would cause us to repent of those, and Lord, that you would make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. It's in the great name of that son that we do pray, amen.